Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good, good to be here. Thanks, Daniel. Tim's not in here, so somebody has to talk back. Uh, great to be here worshiping with you this morning. If you have been with us for a while, you know we closed out our series on Galatians a couple weeks ago. Next week, we are jumping into the book of Philippians, so we're excited for that. And in this interim, we get to do things a little different. Last week, we brought in Jeremy, one of the former pastors here, to preach and this morning, it is a special Wimberley privilege to have my parents, you know, out here, my sister leading worship, and my brother, Charlton, is going to be preaching today. Now, he's not necessarily a professional pastor. He does this thing called being a lawyer. He's like the man at Marathon Oil, something like that. But um, he was actually an original founding elder here at Christ Church before they moved to spring, and he has served as an elder in another church and just faithfully there. So I'm excited about that. I was also really excited that my older brother is here and I get a microphone before him. But all I'll say is, if you know me, you basically know him. We are the same in every way, except he's really tall and really smart and really successful. Aside from that, we are basically the same person. So super excited to have him here. And I'm going to read the sermon text before he comes up. And the sermon text is from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 36. You're going to look and say, oh my gosh, that's a lot. What is this guy doing? It's just context. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came, came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. When I saw Patrick this morning, I was like, yes, I nailed the, the uniform. So, so I was thinking back on the way over here, and it's been 16 years since we had some meetings in somebody's living room, I don't remember, to talk about planning a church in Kingwood. And it's so encouraging to see the community that that church has grown into. Um, we live on the other side of town. We're not here very often. My kids are here often. I have a lot of people I love here. I'm very thankful for this community and the way that you love each other and encourage each other and go out and bring people in. So it's wonderful to be here, be with you this morning. Uh, please pray with me and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What does it mean to be a Christian? If you were to go ask 10 people that question, you might get 10 different answers. Some people would define being a Christian. Oh, there's a hand back there. We'll talk afterwards. <laughs> um, some people might define it by what we're not allowed to do. Next year is an election year. Some people might define it based on who you vote for. Some people might define it on, by whether you come to church or what you believe. But Jesus defines it differently. He says in Luke 9.23 that following him means denying ourselves and taking up our cross. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning unpacking that verse. Before we get there, though, let's make sure we know who Jesus was talking to. You know, as you listen to Patrick read that passage, you might have thought he's talking to his disciples. And it's true that the passage starts with Jesus addressing just his disciples. But there's a transition in verse 23, and it says, and he said to all. And that transition's more explicit when we look at how the gospel of Mark tells this story. Mark 8:34 says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
So if any of us thought we were off the hook, we're not. Jesus is talking to all of us in Luke 9.23. So we know who he's talking to. The rest of this morning, we're going to talk about what Jesus requires, why he requires it, and how we can obey. So let's start with what. In verse 23, Jesus says, if any would come after me. Some other translations say, if any want to be my followers. The NIV says, whoever wants to be my disciple. So in short, Jesus is about to tell us what he requires of Christians. And this is what he says. If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So this verse, it focuses on what we should be doing. I know you all just finished studying Galatians. So we'll come back at the end and discuss what God's role is in all this. But I want to I start by examining what Jesus says here. What does it mean to deny ourselves? The Greek word translated deny means reject or disown. And I think disown is a good way to think about this. If we're followers of Christ, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So denying ourselves, it's consistent with repentance or turning away from our sin. When we sin, we're doing what we want instead of what God has commanded. And we see this play out from the very beginning of the Bible. What did, what did God say to Adam and Eve? Everything here is yours. All of the fruit from all of the trees is yours. You're the king and the queen. Just don't eat from this one tree. And what did they do? They chose to do what they wanted instead of what God commanded. And that first instance of choosing self over God, it was the first sin, and we all have repeated it many times since then. So scripture calls us to repent, literally to turn around and go the other way from our sin and toward God. So to deny ourselves, at least in part, is to do what God commands instead of what we want. Now look at the last part of verse 23. What does it mean to take up our cross? Crucifixion was a horrific way to die in the Roman Empire. It was reserved for the lowest and the worst criminals. It was a way to humiliate someone before killing them and utterly erasing them. The condemned person would carry on his back the wood that would be used to kill him. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying that we're to willingly embrace the instrument of our own death. So this is a call to self-sacrifice. It's a call to identify with the shame that Jesus endured on our behalf. And it's also a call to put to death our earthly desires. Listen to some of the other verses that use similar language. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These verses and Jesus' command to take up our cross, they're a call to take sin seriously. 
and most people today don't, including a lot of Christians. Think back to the last time you heard someone use the word sinful outside of church. They probably weren't talking about actual sin. I typed the word sinful into my web browser. Here are the autocomplete suggestions I got. Sinful colors nail polish. Sinful chocolate desserts. Sinful shoes. I found that one puzzling. Sinful bakery. Sin has become a joke or a way to sell chocolate. In previous generations, Christians took sin seriously and they talked about it differently. The Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle said, sin is your deadly enemy and wants to ruin you forever in hell. This is how we need to think about our sin. We need to go to war with it. When we see it in our lives, we need to murder it. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So to summarize so far, to be a Christian means to follow Jesus. It means recognizing that we're not our own, but we belong to Jesus. So we must put sin to death and turn from going our way and move our whole lives Jesus' way. Well, so far, everything we've talked about concerns how we relate to God. It's been, it's been vertical. But there's also a horizontal aspect to this. Following Jesus affects our relationships with others. His call to deny ourselves and take up our cross is a call to embrace giving our lives for others. Years ago, I was listening to an Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke, and he was teaching on the book of Proverbs. And he was developing a biblical definition of righteousness and wickedness. Here's the example he used to define wickedness. He said, imagine you're driving on a you're driving in traffic on a busy highway, and you need to take the exit ramp. But the ramp is really backed up. So instead of waiting in line to exit, you pass all the cars on the left and you cut in at the last moment. That is biblical wickedness. That example stuck with me over the years. <clears throat> it is jarring to hear something so ordinary called wicked. Why did he say that's wickedness? Because it's the opposite of denying ourselves. It's putting ourselves ahead of others. Here's how Waltke summed up the principle. The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the, right the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Even though he was looking at the book of Proverbs, this principle that he set forth, it's a good summary of the horizontal aspect of following Jesus. We need to be willing to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. And verse 23 says, we need to be willing to do this daily, every day. It should be our way of life. This is the example that Jesus set for us. Jesus was fully God but he came to earth as a servant. 
He washed the feet of his disciples and he told them to go and do likewise. This is why Father Henry Nouwen calls following Jesus a life of downward mobility. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, he's asking us to do something that he modeled for us. Can you imagine how different the reputation of the American church would be if this is what we were known for? Loving and serving others and putting their interests ahead of our own? This is what we should be known for. Jesus says in John 13, 35, that people will know that we are his disciples by the way we love others. So putting this together, to deny ourselves and take up our cross means obeying Jesus, putting sin to death and doing what he commands. It also means loving others and putting their needs ahead of our own. We could briefly summarize this as God first, others second, I'm third. So all we have to do is not sin and put everybody else first. Easy, right? This would be a rough sermon if it stopped there. Thankfully, it doesn't. Jesus says in the very next verse why we should follow him. Luke 9, 24 and 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus tells us that we should follow him, we should deny ourselves and take up our cross because this is the path to life. That seems contradictory. How can losing our life be the path to saving our life? Well, let me try and explain with an example. And I promised my children I would not use them in a sermon illustration. So this is a conversation with a hypothetical child that may or may not have happened in my family. <clears throat> Dad, can I have a donut? Well, how many have you had? Only three. Well, no, get a piece of fruit. But why? Because nobody needs four donuts. It's not good for you. You're so mean. <laughs> Am I so mean? for denying my hypothetical child a fourth donut? They think so, but it's because they're thinking short-term. They're not thinking about the future. They're thinking, I really want to eat some more sugar right now. But I'm thinking long-term. When I say no to the fourth donut, it's because I want something better for them, specifically to live into adulthood and avoid type 2 diabetes. They feel like something is dying, but I'm really prolonging their life. I know that's a silly example, but this is similar to what happens with our own sin and selfishness. We think sin is what we want, but it's because we're thinking short term. We're thinking only about what we want in that moment. 
But Jesus is taking the long view, and he wants us to take the long view. He wants us to live with him for eternity. What Jesus wants for us is better than what we want for ourselves. So Jesus is saying in these verses that devoting our earthly lives to following him is the path to eternal life. In verse 25, he goes on to say, what good is it if we gain everything we think we want in this world and then lose our life? Gaining those things may lead to short-term pleasure, but without Jesus, the end result is eternal misery. Jesus is encouraging us to look past this current life and toward eternity. We get a glimpse of eternity in today's passage. In Luke 9.30, we see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Now, think about how crazy this is. I know sometimes we think that everybody in the Bible kind of lived at around the same time. But when Jesus was on earth, it had been 900 years since Elijah had lived. And it had been 1,500 years since Moses had lived. To give you some perspective, Thomas Jefferson lived 200 years ago. William Wallace, the guy from Braveheart, lived 700 years ago. So when Moses had that conversation with Jesus, Moses had been dead for twice as long as William Wallace. Like, the death of our earthly bodies is not the end of us. Eternity is real. I think most of us know that intellectually, but we don't think about it enough. We're all going to live on this earth for a short time, for a few more decades, and then we're going to exist somewhere else for centuries and centuries and centuries. Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine that a doctor tells you that your level of health for the next five decades is going to depend entirely on how you eat and how you exercise for the next 48 hours. Okay? I'm 45, so if it were me, that means my physical well-being from now until I'm 95 is going to be determined entirely by what I eat and how I exercise for the next two days. If I really believe that doctor, if I believe what he's, he or she is telling me is true, then I can guarantee you I'm going to be incredibly vigilant about what I eat and how I exercise for the next two days. I'm not going to eat any Cheetos. I'm not going to eat ice cream. Every bite's going to be healthy. I'm going to exercise as much as I can. Why? Because there's a huge and a long-term impact from what happens during a very short time frame. The short-term sacrifice is far outweighed by the long-term rewards. This isn't a perfect analogy, but our brief time on earth is something like those 48 hours. The few decades that we will live on earth pale in comparison to the eternity that will come afterwards. And Scripture tells us that what we do in this life will have impacts into eternity. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 says, Train yourself for godliness because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Scripture also tells us that there, there will be treasure in heaven for those who follow Jesus and deny themselves here on earth. We're here for a short time. What we do during that short time will matter literally forever. 
I don't know exactly how all this works. None of us can look with certainty into the future and say what heaven's going to be like. But Scripture promises us this. There are great and lasting rewards for following Jesus. It will be worth giving up what we think we want now. There is nothing we will give up in this life that we will long for in eternity. So we've discussed what. We've talked about why. How do we do this? For starters, we can't do any of this on our own. Today's passage focuses on what we should be doing, so I want us to be careful not to confuse justification and sanctification. The book of Galatians, which you all just studied, is very clear that we are justified entirely by the work of Jesus Christ. Justification is a legal declaration. God declares us righteous based entirely on the work of Jesus. We don't add anything to it. Scripture tells us that prior to being justified, we're dead in our transgressions. We're slaves to sin. Just like dead people can't make themselves alive and slaves can't make themselves free, we can't follow Jesus unless he comes and does something in us first. He has to free us from our bondage to sin and give us new hearts. The context of today's passage emphasizes this. Just before and just after Jesus says, follow me, there are two discussions of who Jesus is and what he will accomplish. In verse 20, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ of God, literally God's anointed or God's chosen. And then in verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. That was both before. Then right after Jesus says, follow me, in verse 23, we have the story of the transfiguration. When Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah, he's, they're talking about what he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then it ends with God the Father saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Jesus' command to follow him, it comes right in the middle of these discussions about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And it's only because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished that we're able to obey it. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross does not save us. These actions are our response to the saving work of Jesus. So when we talk about following Jesus, we're not talking about justification. We're talking about sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Jesus over time. Just like God justifies us, he also sanctifies us. But what's different is in sanctification, he's given us a role to play. J.I. Packer says that sanctification requires God-dependent effort. We can't sit back and do nothing and expect to be sanctified. So what is our role? How do we live a life of denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Jesus? Especially when it's so counter to everything that our culture and our own flesh is telling us. Well, we have to work at it. The Christian life takes work. It takes training just like anything else we want to improve at. I mean, when I look around this room, we've got musicians in here. We've got a couple of engineers or future engineers. We have some artists in here. 
We have a lot of people in here who do CrossFit. (laughs) Becoming good at all these things takes time and effort and training. Take CrossFit, for example. On day one of CrossFit, you don't walk into a warehouse with no AC and start deadlifting 400 pounds. You have to lay the groundwork first. It matters what you eat. It matters if you get enough sleep. You've got to learn the right form so that you can walk the next day. And then after you lay the groundwork, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of repetitions. If you want to get really strong, you have to work at it every day. There's a spiritual equivalent to this. We call them spiritual disciplines. Some people call them means of grace. These are the activities or the means that God uses to sanctify us. You can find a lot of lists of spiritual disciplines, but I want to talk about the three main ones. Scripture, prayer, and being involved in your local church. If we want to follow Jesus, all three of these are essential. So first, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to constantly immerse ourselves in Scripture. During our short time here on earth, the world and our own flesh are trying to recruit us to the wrong team. They are constantly telling us that we should do the opposite of what Jesus commands in Luke 9.23, that we should be true to ourselves, that we should put ourselves first. Scripture is where we learn that Jesus calls us to live differently and that doing so is the path to life but we can't just read it once. We have to keep reading Scripture because if we don't, we're going to forget everything we know tomorrow. For all of human history, God's people have repeatedly forgotten what God did for them. We see this throughout the Bible, and you and I are no different. So, if we want to live our lives in pursuit of Jesus, then we have to continually read the Bible, memorize Scripture, preach the gospel to ourselves, And we have to keep doing it every day. Second, if we want to follow Jesus, we need to be people of prayer. We can't live this kind of self-sacrificial life on our own. And we shouldn't try to do it on our own. We can only live this way by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And that means talking to him regularly. We should ask God to help us put into practice what we read in Scripture We should ask him to show us what needs to change in our lives. We have promises throughout Scripture that when we ask for something that's consistent with God's will, then he'll give it to us. So we need to ask God to point out sin in our lives that we need to kill and to show us how we can serve others better. God will answer those prayers. Third, if we want to follow Jesus, we need to do it in community. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. We need to come to worship. We need to come to the table. We need accountability and people checking on us and community. And we need these things all the time, not just on Sundays. I know enough people in this room to know that this is a community that's full of people who love to serve others. If you know that's something you need to get better at, There are plenty of people in here who can model that for you. Get to know them. Ask them to help. Scripture, prayer, and church community. 
These are the primary tools that God has given us to get better at following him. So we need to put these tools to use in our lives. This is going to look different for all of us. It's going to look different based on the situation. Here's one way I've used these. When I have noticed patterns of sin in my life that I want to get rid of, one, I found some scripture passages to dwell on that remind me why I want to kill this sin. Two, I used those verses and I wrote a prayer asking God to help, and I prayed it regularly. And then three, and this is the one that's hard for some of us, I went to my pastor and I said, here's what's going on. I need you to check in with me on this. That last one can be hard because we want other people to think that we have it all together. But I'm going to let you in on a secret. None of us have it all together. And of all people, your pastors know that already. (laughs) Ask them for help. All right, to wrap up, being a Christian means following Jesus. And that means a life of killing sin and serving others. The Christian life takes work. So let's start planning for when we're going to pray and read scripture. Let's plan specific ways that we can serve others. Let's put as much work into our godliness training as we do into our workouts and our hobbies and our day jobs. And as we do these things, let's keep our eyes on Jesus who modeled this for us and whose sacrifice on our behalf makes it possible. Also, I want to challenge us, all of us, to think more about eternity. In our heads, we know it's real, but are we living our lives like we believe it? The more we think about our future with Jesus, the easier it will be to deny ourselves and let go of our short-term desires here on earth. This is not something that any of us is going to do perfectly. Not today, not next week not at any time on this side of heaven. It's a lifelong pursuit, but there is no more worthy pursuit than following our risen Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for pulling us from death and into life by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Please help us to grasp the enormity of eternity with you. Help us to understand and remember the everlasting benefits of denying ourselves and following Jesus. Please grow the fruits of the Spirit in us and continually draw us closer to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God from Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Go in peace.